This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, I'm really excited about this seminar. My name is Pastor Anel Kanda. I pastor in Central California. I was born and raised in Southern California, but my parents immigrated from Northwest India a year before I was born. Um, amen from the Indian people over there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, the name of this seminar is called Angels, Apologetics, and Adventists. Now, you guys came to a good seminar. I'm not going to lie. A guy preached a seminar before, and I really believe that God has truly led in this. However, if I was to go to any of the other seminars, it would be the ones after this seminar. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to be covering a variety of topics, and somehow the PowerPoint has turned off certain things. But that says Ellen White and UFOs. Number two is Ellen White and UFOs. So if you think to yourself, what in the world is he going to be talking about? The only way for you to find out is to come to that next seminar. The, the next one, number three, is called From Krishna to Quickie Marts, How to Minister to Hindus, Indian People. So you want amen again over there. So you're just thinking to yourself, how do I witness to Mr. Singh or Mrs. Patel? Well, ladies and gentlemen, come out to number three. Okay? Number four is how to witness to evolutionists and philosophers in the classroom. I take college classes at the local community college, and I do a lot of outreach there. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to share with you how you can reach out to people who may be skeptics of the Bible. Number five, we're going to cover Angelic Psychology 101, The Mind of an Angel. The Mind of an Angel. You don't want to miss that one. That one's going to be exciting. And I think my most favorite topic is going to be number six, Lucifer and the Great Controversy, Mysteries of the Fall. Mysteries of the Fall. You don't want to miss that. Now, if you think you know about the origin of evil, ladies and gentlemen, you come out to number six, you're going to be blown away by some of the things we're going to discover. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to start with a word of prayer. We're going to ask Jesus to send the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us to all truth, because the Holy Spirit is the greatest of all teachers. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this time. And God, right now, we want to give this time to you. We pray you would educate our minds. We pray, God, that the information would be useful and practical, Lord. We don't want it if we can use it for our lives. So, Jesus, we pray that this information would help us. Thank you, God, for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. All right. Very good. By the way, I also want to thank our friend right there, he's running the AV system. How many people can guess how old he is? Try. Can you stand up, young Solomon? He has been blessed with much wisdom. He's 12 years old. When he was handyman lapel, I was like, how old are you? You know, I was very shocked. So praise the Lord, God's given you a good mind. All right, think, of, think uh, just when it comes to good mind, Prospect Magazine. Anybody ever heard of Prospect Magazine? Okay, they're a, it's a Britain magazine, and they gained notoriety because what they did is that they took a survey of the entire world, and they wanted to find out who were the top 10 thinkers in the entire world. They did a survey over 10,000 people over 100 different countries, and they came to, top, to their uh, top 10 people. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to share with you the top three. The first one is a guy by the name of Steven Pinker. He is a Harvard psychology professor. 
This individual has written various books, and he has actually done a lot of research, and his conclusion is that humanity has become less violent over time. Yeah, right. The next guy, his name is Afghan Ghani, or Ashif Ashrif Ghani, and he is an Afghani diplomat, and this individual has done a lot for global peace, and he also tried to lead, uh, you can say, the economic recovery for Afghanistan after the war. However, number one was none other than Richard Dawkins. He is actually considered the world's greatest thinker in the world today. Can you believe that? Very interesting. This individual has written a few different books. The ones that probably are the most famous are The Selfish Gene and The God Delusion. The God, Delu God Delusion is probably his most famous one. It's a bestseller, and he has written so much about atheism. He is considered the world's most famous atheist in the, today. He talks about his conversion to atheism. This individual says this, the main residual reason why I was religious was from being so impressed with the complexity of life and feeling that it had to do with the designer. Now pay attention to that. I think it was when I realized that Darwinism was a far superior explanation for that. Pulled the rug out from under the argument of design and that left me with nothing. And he said he came to this conclusion when he was just a teenager. This individual has spawned other atheists to come to the forefront as well. You've heard of the four horsemen of atheism, this sort of militant branch of atheism. Now, since Richard, uh, Christopher Hitchens died, they're called the Trinity of Atheism. The Trinity of Atheism. And you have right there Richard Dawkins, Samuel Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. They call Richard Dawkins the skeptic, uh, Samuel Harris the scholar, Christopher Hitchens the rebel, and Daniel Dennett the philosopher, the four horsemen of atheism. What's very interesting is that this has actually, actually gone the next step, and you now have atheist churches that are popping up. Do you hear about this? Not just in England, but actually in California. They started a few down in California, and they're trying to raise more and more money. Now you're thinking to yourself, what in the world would they be doing at a church? It's very funny, I was looking at their services, and you know what they actually do? They go there and they're singing 80 songs. That's exactly right, they sing 80s songs. It's like, what else are they gonna be doing, you know what I mean? So this is what actually is taking place. They're raising money to start more and more of these atheist churches where they talk about how religion has been so bad to them and now they are free from these restraints. The Pew Research Religious and Public Life Project, they did a survey and this was the conclusion of their survey. They want to find out sort of the religious identity of Americans. The number of Americans who do not identify with any particular religion or say they have no religion has grown to one-fifth of the U.S. population. In the last five years alone, the unaffiliated have increased from just over 15% to under 20% of all U.S. adults. Atheism now comprises 1.6%, and by the way, Mormonism is 1.7%. Atheism is fast gaining, and they're expecting it to surpass Mormonism. In other words, we'll have more atheists in the United States than we will have Mormons. Very interesting. Agnostic is 2.4%, and nothing is there. When they say nothing is particular, it means we don't know. 12.1, and those who don't know, 0.8. And so you see that this movement is actually growing more and more and more. In ancient history, you do have occasionally atheists that would pop up here and there. But no one would be sort of forming this militant movement that we now see today. What you're going to discover is something very interesting, something that God set in motion that man attempted to twist and warp that has led to militant atheism today. 
you're going to be blown away by some of the things you're going to learn. The word atheism is the combination of two words, the alpha in Greek, which means no, and the theos, which means God. So it's no God, atheism. And there are more and more people who are professing to be atheists. Ellen White actually wrote about atheists. And I'm going to share with you five unique, different quotes that she says about atheists. And this is going to blow your mind away, ladies and gentlemen. Look what she says right here. It is a constant witness to his greatness, wisdom, and love. Had the Sabbath always been sacredly observed, there could never have been a what? An atheist or an idolater. Now watch this. She says it again in different ways. Had the Sabbath always been kept, man's thoughts and affections would have led him to the, his maker as the object of reverence and worship, and there would never have been an idolater in what? An atheist or an infidel. Watch what she says right here. If man had always remembered to keep holy the Sabbath, there would never have been an atheist or an infidel in our world. But Satan has made an effort to keep God out of the mind and has worked his plan so as to accomplish this. And having banished God from the memory of man, he has put if himself, if possible, in the place of God and even goes so far as to exalt himself above God in compelling the consciousness of men, which God has never done. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, just stick with me. You're going to see something so powerful at the very end of this. Watch what she says right here. Had the seventh day always been kept, there would never have been an idolater, an atheist, or an infidel. The sacred observance of God's holy day would have directed the minds of men to their creator, the true and living God. Everything in nature also would have brought him to their remembrance and would have borne witness to his power and love. And this is where it gets even more amazing, ladies and gentlemen. When the foundations of the world were laid, there also laid the foundation of the Sabbath. It was shown that if the true Sabbath had been kept, there would never have been an infidel, an atheist. The observance of the Sabbath would have preserved the world from idolatry. Ladies and gentlemen, you see these quotes over and over and over again. When God set the Ten Commandments, ladies and gentlemen, it was the perfect dynamics for human existence. Do you hear what I'm saying? The Ten Commandments were designed specifically for humanity. When man adjusted or ch changed or warped these laws, it led to breakdowns in the dynamics of human existence. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. I used to actually be into car racing. Maybe it was an Asian thing, you know? You know India's part of Asia, right? <laughs> People tell me, no, India's not part of Asia. I'm like, where's India? I don't know, but it's not in Asia, it's in Asia. So I used to be into import racing, actually, when I got out of high school. And, you know, I used to, you know, use like Corollas or Hondas. And there's one thing I begin to learn really fast, that when you take a stock engine, in other words, an engine that has not been uh, sort of messed with or adjusted or changed, when you take a stock engine that comes right off the manufacturer line and you put aftermarket parts in there, you know what begins to take place? You have less efficiency in the entire system. You may have speed in one part, but you begin to have less efficiency in the entire system. In other words, when God created the laws for human dynamics, in it, these systems were interdependent. And if one was changed, it would lead to a cascading effect upon the other systems. Are we tracking yes or no? You can't miss this point, ladies and gentlemen. Because God said some things in Exodus chapter 20. He gave 10 powerful commandments. Can you say amen to that? And the devil hates that law. And when man began to adjust or mess with these laws, ladies and gentlemen, it led to breakdowns in society. And I'm going to show you where. And you're going to be blown away by this. 
You see this? This is the early church. You have there in the book of Acts, the continuation of Luke's gospel. You find that the early church was very faithful and they begin to go forward with the gospel. However, when you read the book of Acts, right before Paul's execution, ladies and gentlemen, Paul gave a very stark warning to the early church. Look what he says right here. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, speaking to the Ephesian elders. For I know this, that after my what? He's not talking about when he gets transferred to Rome. He's talking about when he dies. After my departure, savage wolves may come in. Is that what he says? Will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among you, yourselves, men will rise up speaking what, ladies and gentlemen? Perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for these three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day, night and day with tears. And Paul gave that warning under the impression of the Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, when you take a good look at the early church, there were two doctrines that entered the early church that permeated all of Christendom at that time. Number one, it was the change of the Sabbath. Number two, it was a focus on the immortality of the soul. And by the way, do these two doctrines play end-time role? Have, do they have end-time implications? Oh, you better believe it. These two exact doctrines. And what happened in the early church, when they begin to worship on Sunday, they remove the Sabbath, some interesting things begin to take place. When they begin to focus on the immortality of the soul, or let's say not focus, but they actually changed the biblical doctrine about the body and the mind connection, and they said, no, the soul is immortal and it cannot die, what began to take place was something unusual in the entire world. In fact, you can take a good look at the early church fathers right here. The first teaching of the immortality of the soul within the church was by the Neoplatonist Clement and his pupil, Origen. Now, this is extremely important, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know what the immortality of the soul doctrine is? Okay, someone please explain it to me. Raise your hand. Okay, good. Very good. How about you? Okay, very good. Anything else? Yes. Very good. It's not just referring to the immortality soul, but sort of this dualistic approach that there is a body and there's this sort of Casper the ghost entity living within us. That's what they call the soul, the undying part of us. And so this doctrine began to really take place influenced by Greek philosophy and it began to spread more and more and more. Now the Bible gives a very unique combination of what mankind is. Without any of these elements, mankind ceases to be mankind. There's not this one part of us and another part of us. This is a whole. The heart, body, mind, and soul. This is a whole being, and this is what the Bible talks about. Without any part of these, we are no longer a person. Does that make sense, ladies and gentlemen? But the immortality of the soul taught this undying part of us that lived in us, and then there was the body. And if the body was destroyed, the undying part of us could still go on and on. Now you're going to see something very interesting. You also found out about the change of the Sabbath that began to take place. It didn't just start in AD 321, ladies and gentlemen. Some of the early church fathers were practicing it, and many of them had other heretical ideas as well. Unfortunately, you know what's interesting? Only the heretical ideas of the church fathers survived. And this is why much of Christendom accepts it. And they say, well, we can take a good look at the church fathers, and this is what they were practicing. Hence, this justifies what we do. Wrong again, ladies and gentlemen. Mostly what survived was the heresies. But we have the word of God. Amen? And so you begin to see early on in the church that they begin to practice or focus on this idea of the immortality of the soul and the change of the Sabbath. 
over and over again, these teachings begin to spread. Now this man, anybody know who he is? His name is Siegfried Tons, said he wrote this book. And by the way, you have to get this book. It's called The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day. The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day. And I respect this theologian, I'll tell you why. Because he has big picture perspective. Big picture perspective. Look what he says right here talking about the early church. Belief in the immortality of the soul was a key factor in the Christian estrangement, now watch this, from the material world. This view led to a diminished interest in what? A diminished interest in what? Nature. He explains it. Because concern for the body brings no apparent spiritual benefit. The body is only the prison of the soul. Why explore it? The earth has no place in God's ultimate reality. Why study it? Don't miss this point, because if you miss this point, you won't understand anything else about the seminar. Look what he says right here. The melody of Christ, talking about the Sabbath, and his creation was silenced in the Christian church early in its history. Disparagement of the Sabbath, as in the writings of origin, went hand in hand with the repudiation of the body, now watch this, and the neglect of the what? Earth. If attention to nature ground almost to a halt, it was owed in part to the fact that the ideological framework to value nature was lacking. By the removal of the biblical teaching about the whole body and mind, and now this introduction of this idea of this immortality of the soul, and this teaching that you now worship on Sunday, the whole idea of creationism, of research into nature, of the understanding of the body began to become more and more diminished. And you know what this led to, ladies and gentlemen? It led to some of the most unusual things through the Middle Ages and Dark Ages. Look what he says right here. Thus the groundwork was laid for a millennium of indifference towards the what? Body and the natural world. With time, this outlook resulted in unprecedented helplessness in matters of health and disease. People not only lacked rudimentary understanding of health and hygiene, they did not take the kind of interest in the physical world that could have led to insight. And Ellen White says this in Great Controversy, talking about the early church and what began to take place into the Dark Ages and Middle Ages. For centuries, Europe had made no what? Progress in what? Learning, arts, or civilization, a moral and intellectual paralysis had fallen upon who? Christendom. You know what that means? They became stupid. Stupid about what? About matters of health and matters of science. Because no longer was nature important. It was going to be destroyed. No longer was the body important. It was part of sin. The only thing that mattered was the soul. Ladies and gentlemen, this is extremely important because what you begin to take place through the Dark Ages was a very interesting view about medicine. James MacDonald talks about health during the Dark Ages and to the Middle Ages. From Christendom, AD 300 to around 1700, watch this, all serious mental conditions were understood as symptoms of demonic possession. Since illness was thought to be caused by supernatural agents, cures had to be essentially supernatural as well. Every cure was literally miraculous, and these miracles could be effected only by prayer, penance, and the assistance of saints. To claim otherwise was heretical and blasphemous. In fact, look what else. He talks about the practice of medicine was so monopolized by the church, only the laymen could practice it. So I want you to see what's happening to health and science, ladies and gentlemen. It's becoming more and more controlled by the church. It's becoming more diminished. And people have this very superstitious idea about science. Then the church stopped certain clergymen practicing it as well. Monastic medicine was prohibited by the Synod of Clermont in 1130. 
Thenceforth, the practice of medicine was reserved to secular clergy. Over and over again, ladies and gentlemen, you see this breakdown of the progression of science and health. Cures were still carried out using exorcism, consecrated bells, relics, biblical readings, holy water, and torture. The insane were regarded as possessed by evil spirits. When Johann Weyer explained that mental illness was the real cause underlying the symptoms that had been attributed to witches and evil spirits, the church denounced him and his book was placed on the index. He himself was accused of witchcraft and was obliged to flee for his life. It gets worse. Freelance anatomy for original research was illegal. Scientists like Leonardo da Vinci were obliged to carry on their anatomical research in secret. And by the way, how did he carry that out, ladies and gentlemen? What did he do? How did he hide his research? You ever heard of mirror writing? Much of Leonardo da Vinci's greatest research is found in his mirror writing. In other words, he wrote backwards. And when people would look at his writings, they could not understand it. Because what he was doing, he was on the brink of scientific discoveries, and he had to hide it from the church because of their views. Let's keep going. These individuals, by the way, we have found out through research and history that there were many individuals who actually had many medical breakthroughs in their discoveries, but they could not release them because they were so afraid of the church. And many things that were discovered generations later, it turned out that other individuals had already found out about them. Very interesting. This is interesting. By the Middle Ages, medicine had regressed on all fronts in Christian lands. Muslims who came into contact with Christians, as Usama of Shazar did during the Crusades, were shocked by the crudity of their medicine. And it was not only medicine, but public health too. Whereas Muslims adopted public baths and insisted on washing before meals, Christians adopted the view that it was wrong to wash. It was flying in the face of God to presume to clean off his honest Christian filth. Christians were obliged to accept the will of God and the disease and misery that went with it. Queen Elizabeth I was famously said to have bathed twice a year, whether she needed it or not. It almost sounds like she was proud of that fact, ladies and gentlemen. I only bathe once a year. That's so gross. Useful research was not possible when the church exercised control. In fact, the church's ignorance often made medical problems all the greater. And you're going to see how, ladies and gentlemen, because this Ignorance, this sort of diminished view of science and health, leads to a climax during the Middle Ages, ladies and gentlemen, and it was none other than the Black Plague. Half of, half of England was actually wiped out by the Black Plague. Much of Europe was destroyed by the Black Plague. And ladies and gentlemen, what they begin to discover, researchers, that rudimentary, basic medical practices would have saved countless millions of people. But what took place, ladies and gentlemen? They outlawed the study of health, of nature, of science. And sure enough, it led to this great disaster. During these years, the population dropped by as much as 50%, and in some locations, much higher. And that's very important, ladies and gentlemen, because what they begin to discover about the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, that it could have been easily remedied by basic health practices, but there was a group of people who did survive the Black Plague, the Jews. In fact, many of the Catholics accused them of witchcraft. You know why? Because they weren't getting sick. Why? The Jews were following the basic health practices found in the Old Testament. Can you say amen to that? 
about sanitation and about certain foods. And so you start seeing this take place that God was showing where his wisdom was. And so while much of Europe was being destroyed, these Jews that were still practicing Old Testament laws, ladies and gentlemen, they were being preserved while the rest of the world was falling into complete destruction. This is interesting. Tonstead says right here, historians of medicine have looked to the prevailing Christian view of the world at that time as a contributing factor. The unfathomable disaster could not be attributed to accident, ladies and gentlemen. Basic sanitation practices, health practices, would have saved countless millions. Scholars account for the absence of even rudimentary insights by the fact that universities of that time were under the jurisdiction of the church, which was suspicious of discovery and novelty. Compared to theology, medicine was seen as a secondary science. Thus, medieval understanding was hamstrung by its own most basic belief. Very interesting, very interesting. And what happened after the end of the Middle Ages, ladies and gentlemen? You had what was called the what? The French Revolution. And one of the main reasons for the French Revolution, ladies and gentlemen, it was sort of a backlash because of all that took place during the Dark Ages into the Middle Ages, the corruption, the, the regression of science, the evil that took place, the tyranny. And so what you can take place was complete chaos. In fact, Ellen White talks about the chaos that took place during the French Revolution. She talks about how many of the, even the priests of the Catholic Church disowned God publicly, while everybody else was sort of in this frantic, in this joy, as they were throwing off the restraints of the Roman Church. She talks about how one priest, he disowned in solemn and explicit terms the existence of the deity in whose worship he had been consecrated and devoted himself in future to the homage of liberty, equality, virtue, and morality. And they had the goddess of reason as they were going, you know, taking her through that parade, ladies and gentlemen. The French Revolution is very important because the French Revolution is simply an experiment and it reveals what took place when you set aside God's law and the corruption that took place. Beheadings begin to take place, not just of church leaders, but of politicians, and then of church leaders, and then politicians, and it was this cycle over and over and over again. The guillotines had no limit to the blood and the heads that were just rolling because of all that took place during the French Revolution. It was truly a bloody time. In fact, one priest said this, God, if you exist in front of everybody during this great change and uh, revolution, if you exist, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe your existence? And he said that publicly, and the crowd cheered, ladies and gentlemen. This is extremely important right here, because what happens in the French Revolution as a backlash of the dark and middle ages Ravi Zacharias puts it this way, historically the real growth of atheism is to be dated from the 18th century. The French Revolution propelled atheism to the what? Center stage. No longer it was just a heretic atheist over here or a heretic atheist over here. Now you actually had an entire movement that was springing up. Enough people had, were fed up with the Roman Catholic Church. And ladies and gentlemen, what happened after the French Revolution, you begin to see a cascading effect, a downfall of scientific uh, sort of respect for who God is. 
You had individuals like Thomas Paine, individuals like Voltaire, individuals like Karl Marx and Charles Darwin who began to pop up on the scene right after the French Revolution. Individuals like Friedrich Nietzsche who said, there is going to come the most bloodiest century because we have now cast off God. And sure enough, you had many of the most greatest wars take place right after or sometime after the French Revolution. Individuals like Stalin and other individuals who begin to pop up like Richard Dawkins. Ladies and gentlemen, you can clearly see this. What took place in the early church when they messed with God's law, with the Bible, it led to a cascading effect and eventually produced these atheists, these infidels, these skeptics who were so angry with God. In fact, look what Ellen White says here. Great controversy. It was popery that had begun the work. What's the rest, ladies and gentlemen? Which atheism was what? Completing. We now have atheism as a movement. And by the way, you want to hear one of their greatest critiques when they're debating Christians? You know what they always refer to when they want to make Christians look bad? The Middle Ages. Ladies and gentlemen, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, the Middle Ages would be an argument enough for us to reject Christianity. You hear what I just said? Don't misquote me on this. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, would be argument enough for people to reject Christianity. And sure enough, a movement has grown over the years. In other words, when you actually had a religion that wanted nothing to do with science, it produced eventually a science that wanted nothing to do with religion. Ladies and gentlemen, the facts of history are there. The facts of history are there. When you take a good look in our world around us, you see this growing movement, and you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm way at this end of the spectrum. I believe 100% what the Bible says. I believe God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. I believe all the things that scriptures are teaching. I take it in a very literal, fundamental sense. All the way at the end of the spectrum, you find atheists who say, no, we completely denounce the Bible, denounce God, and anything that stands for God. And then you have rest of Christendom that wavers back and forth in between the middle. And we're over here and we're thinking to ourselves, how in the world are we going to reach people like that? Well, praise the Lord for the spirit of prophecy. Can you say amen to that? There's so much insight about there. But let's take a good look at what the scriptures tell us. The Bible tells us that we actually can do what Jesus did. Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 10 verse 38, talking about the ministry of Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of who? Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all. Notice this. Who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Jesus' ministry not just consisted of preaching, it consisted of what? Healing. It was combined together and he was so effective in this ministry. When you take a good look at the life of Christ, ladies and gentlemen, you find over and over again that he shared the message of heaven. And you want to know what the message of heaven is? It's the message of health. The message of health. Healing grace upon God's people. In fact, look what she says right here. Much of the prejudice that prevents the truth of the third angel's message from reaching the hearts of the people, watch this, might be removed if more attention were given to what? More attention was given to what? Health reform. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. You have a group of atheists who look back at the dark ages and say, you repress science, you repress nature, the study of the body. And you know what they find when they see Seventh-day Adventists? They find a group of people who say, wait a minute, 
we love the body. Amen? We care about health. We're interested in the way the organism functions and works. And she says that when they see our regard for health reform, the prejudice that prevents them from accepting the third angel's message. And by the way, what is the first angel's message? You don't know it? Is this a Seventh-day Adventist conference? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his what? And then what's the next part? So it's a call to come back to the Sabbath, the creation belief. Ladies and gentlemen, she says right here, look, that if health reform, more attention was given to it, she says, much of the prejudice that prevents people from coming to our messages, from accepting God and who he is and the beautiful truths of the scripture would be gone, would be gone. And by the way, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for five and a half years. And let me tell you this. And I believe this with my whole heart. I'm also an evangelist. I'm an assistant evangelist for the conference. They send me out to do evangelism in different places. I've done it. Most of my Christian experience. And let me tell you something. I get a completely different crowd when, I do, when, I do, when we do health meetings versus when we do evangelistic series. You know who I tend to get in evangelistic series? And I don't downplay. I love evangelism. But the majority of people that I get during evangelistic series are not like the people that I get when we're doing health meetings, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, what I tend to get sometimes when I'm doing evangelism, maybe it has to do with the fact that I'm always talking about certain things, I get conspiracy theorists. I get people that, that believe Obama's the Antichrist. You know, I, I get people who are very suspicious. So, therefore, I love prophecy. I can use that angle and I can reach people like that. Amen? But what I found when we do messages of health, oh, we'll get atheists, we'll get skeptics, we will get people who want nothing to do with the Bible, new angels, and they will come to these meetings. They say, oh, yeah, I want to know about cooking. I want to know about health. I want to know about all these things. And she says the prejudice will be removed. Ladies and gentlemen, look what she says right here. During the past few years, the Lord has given much instruction regarding the establishment of hygienic restaurants in large cities. Over and over again, he has indicated that in many cities, we should have small what? Wouldn't you love to open up a vegetarian restaurant? It's my dream. Call it Anel's. <laughs> uh, pick, a, pick a better name. The thing is just Indian food. Okay. Over, okay, over and over again, he has indicated that in many cities we should have small restaurants as centers of influence. Now watch this. By which the attention of who? Thinking who? That also includes women. Thinking men and women would be called to the principles that make us a what? Peculiar people. This would have led to a, men, this, would, this many would, thus many would be led to a knowledge of the message for this time. Ladies and gentlemen, you want to find two individuals who practice the health message? You take a good look at the life of Daniel. By the way, who knows what the last verse of Daniel chapter 1 is? You don't read the book of Daniel. I like chiding you guys. What's the last verse of Daniel chapter 1? You don't know? Oh my goodness. Wait, say it a little louder. I can't hear. I hear some female's voice over there. Please speak louder. Do you know how Daniel chapter 1 ends? It ends with Daniel's longevity. It ends with his long life. He outlived kings, ladies and gentlemen. And his life 
the long life was a testimony to these heathen kings about the power of God. By the way, do you know the story of Joseph? When Joseph, don't miss this point, this is powerful. Joseph brings his father Jacob to Pharaoh. And do you remember when Jacob, he blesses Pharaoh, he like puts his hand on Pharaoh. And Ellen White says, with conscious superiority, he laid his hands on Pharaoh and he blessed him. This old man. But do you remember what Pharaoh said afterwards? How old are you? You want to know why? Egyptians didn't live that long. They never saw people this old. No joke. Egyptians died early, 40s, 50s. And then they saw this old man, Jacob, and Pharaoh's like, how old are you? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I know about another group of people that outlive other people. Woo! Right here. Americans who define themselves as who? Have an average life expectancy of who? Of how much? 89, about a what? A decade what? Longer than the average who? And you know what people should be saying about you? How old are you? How old are you? The elasticity in your skin is still there. You have a youthful step. Ladies and gentlemen, this is no joke. While the rest of the world is decaying, in fact, when you take a good look at the corner, I, you know, I'm in Ceres Modesto. On the corner, we have a Walgreens and we have a CVS right across the street from each other. And guess what? There's no competition. You want to know why? Because there's enough people who will buy their pharmacies, ph pharmaceuticals. You go into the whole stores. Ladies and gentlemen, these pharmacies are not making money by selling, as you've seen on TV products or candy bars. You know where they're making their money? You go into the back, they're lined up at the pharmacy. These pharmacies are surviving. They got enough people who are falling apart that these businesses can be right next to each other and not have any competition. The whole world, ladies and gentlemen, is being brought to the center stage of health reform. And we as Seventh-day Adventists have a beautiful message of health. And there are events that are leading us providentially to the very forefront of this. And God is saying, use this as to your advantage. You know, we had this great big health fair at our church. And I was passing out flyers. I remember I went to Jamba Juice. I love Jamba Juice. Don't you love Jamba Juice? I could use one right now. But anyways, I went to Jamba Juice. And you know, you see a lot of people coming in from jogging. They have like, you know, they're just sweat stains all over them. And they're just like, okay, I'll get that. And they'll get their Jamba Juice. And I was passing out flyers. And I was like, hey, come to this uh, health fair that we're doing. And she says, well, what's this about? And I said, do you know who the longest living people on earth are? And she's like, who? I said, come find out. Ladies and gentlemen, the message of health works. Amen? Amen? And it will attract every kind of person out there, regardless if they're skeptics, regardless if they're atheists or idolaters. The message of health works. Sanitarium work is one of the most successful means of reaching all classes of people. How many classes? All classes of people, our sanitariums are, to the, are the right hand of the gospel, opening ways by which suffering humanity may be reached with the glad tidings of healing through Christ. In these institutions, the sick may be taught to commit their cases to the great physician, who will cooperate with their earnest efforts to regain health, bringing them healing of soul as well as the healing of body. Can you say amen to that? And last quote right here. The people are in sad need of the light shining from the pages of our health books and journals. God desires us to use these books and journals as what? mediums through which flashes of light may arrest, arrest, grab the attention of the people and cause them to heed the warning of the message of the third angel. 
Ladies and gentlemen, God is calling us to re-examine our health message and to start risking, risking it by proclaiming the health message in a more greater and powerful way. Amen? The sky's the limit with what God can do through you. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the end of the seminar. Thank you for your grace. And Jesus, we just pray that you would help us to be examples. Lord, we know this world is affected by sin, but Jesus, we pray that we could use this beautiful message of health in reaching others. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.